Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of The New Deal and a co-host of An Honorable Profession. This is a very special show. This is our 200th episode and our five-year anniversary. And I just wanted to say that I am so grateful to be part of this, to be able to talk with and introduce you to inspiring leaders across the country who are solving problems, making a difference today and who are going to be the future leaders of our party and our country for years to come. At a time where we're bombarded constantly by the hate and the division and the dysfunction in our politics, these conversations each week with good people doing good things, serving in an honorable profession, these conversations bring me hope and joy, and I hope that they do for you too. On this special episode, I did want to take a minute to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. We cannot do this without you. And if you want to do something a little special for us in honor of our anniversary, we'd love it. You can share this with your friends. You can subscribe if you're not already. You can leave us a five-star review or make a donation at newdealleaders.org to help us with the next 200 episodes, which we're already looking forward to. But let's get to it. We have an amazing guest here today to help us celebrate our 200th, Jamie Harrison, the chair of the Democratic National Committee. He's had his own interesting journey into public service as a young, passionate aide to Jim Clyburn, then to go and lead the South Carolina Democratic Party, to run for U.S. Senate, and eventually chair the DNC. We're so excited to talk to him today about where we are as Democrats, what the 2024 election will bring, as well as the importance of state and local leaders in helping build the party brand. Thanks for being here and hope you enjoy. All right, Jamie Harrison, welcome to an honorable profession. Thank you so much for having me. It's definitely a pleasure to be on. Well, we are so excited to have you as our guest on our 200th episode of this podcast. As we were talking about, you know, we have tried over these episodes to talk to thought leaders and elected officials about the Democratic Party and really about the honorable profession that, that politics and government is and try to restore a little faith in government. So we're happy to have you talk to us about the Democratic Party and the upcoming election and when where we go from here. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Excellent. Well, let's start with, you know, as DNC chair, you are obviously the most involved in thinking as we head into 2024 about where we are and what we're going to need to do to to be successful as Democrats. Just kind of from the outset, what is your thinking about the landscape and what we're going to need to do come next November? Well, listen, we say every election that this is the most important election, and I really do believe that this election cycle is critical for us. It's crucial. In 2020, we were able to really save democracy from the tyranny that we saw in terms of uh, Donald Trump, and it all culminated in what we saw and witnessed on January 6th. 
Um, and we know that the Republican Party, instead of learning from that moment and correcting course, has really doubled down on the MAGA extremism. It's gotten worse. I was just in Milwaukee for the debate and uh, witnessing, and, and I always knew that they would do this, but witnessing these folks who are running for presidency, raising their hand, saying that if Donald Trump got convicted and ran again, they would still vote for him. It's just, it's mind-blowing. It is literally mind-blowing. And so we know that American democracy, as we know it, as we love it, is on the line, this election cycle. And so we can't be silent. We can't be complacent. We have to double down and do all that we can. And I tell folks all the time, we have to be just as vigilant and relentless as they are in terms of tearing down our democracy, in terms of protecting and defending it. You know, there's this quote I often say from Dr. King, which he wrote in, you know, years ago in a Birmingham jail. But I think it's still very relevant to us today. He said, we will repent in this generation, not merely for hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. It's time for the good people of this nation to stand up and to say enough is enough. Thank you, Chair. Couldn't agree. I have a question, which is, you know, all elections are tough, especially tough when people are trying to stack the rules or change the rules against what should be a fair fight. What's the DNC looking at in terms of combating, you know, whether it's partisan redistricting and gerrymandering or just voter intimidation or efforts to limit people's ability to participate in the election? Well, Ryan, you remember the 2022 midterm election we knew was going to be where the rubber met road in terms of the height of Republicans pushing on voter suppressive efforts. We saw them blocking the the John Lewis voting rights measures to keep them from becoming law. And these laws would have, in essence, strengthened the the Voting Rights Act, as well as provide new protections for all of our voters, protecting their right to have their voices heard. And so Republicans stood in the door and stood in the way of that happening. So we knew that if we couldn't get this stuff passed legislatively, we had to take some action. So the DNC last midterm put together the largest voter protection effort in the history of the DNC. And we started that a year and a half before the 2022 midterm election, shortly after I became chair. Um, And what we saw was one of the quietest election cycles that we've seen in the midterms in a very long time. We did not have because we had lawyers on the ground who had built relationships and built connections with local elected officials and judges and other legal professionals in our various battleground states, we had one of the most least eventful as it relates to voter suppression efforts that we've seen in an election cycle in a very, very long time. Well, what we have done then is use that as the basis and the foundation to build going into 2024 when we know the stakes are even higher. And so we are being we're working in coordination as much as legally possible with many of these other groups out there to make sure that we have the entire nation covered and that every person who wants to go out to vote, regardless of your Democrat and independent or even a Republican, that you can have your voice heard. We meaning the Democratic Party, is the party of voting rights for all of America's people, not just for the Democrats we want to turn out, 
but all of America's people. We're going to be a vibrant democracy. Then we as a party have to safeguard that. I just wish our Republican friends would join us in that effort. Are there any states or specific efforts that you're keeping a special eye on right now that you think could profoundly impact participation in election in 2024? Pretty much all of them. I mean, of course, we're going to have a presence in in the battleground states in which you know we'll determine the presidency. But one thing, the assurance I've given to all of our state party chairs is that when you have a need, we want to be there to be able to help out and to safeguard. And so our voter protection hotline will be open. Even when we have these primaries or special elections, we have lawyers, the I Will Vote initiative, already on the ground and ready and willing to protect the rights of votes of all voters. First of all, thank you for that effort that you guys are doing. We were so happy to have Raina Walters Morgan come with us. She is the best. She was the best. She was with us in Detroit to talk about your voter protection efforts. And we were so grateful for her to be with us for that. I would love to talk a little bit about kind of about the messaging and to Ryan's point, you know, this is a, it's such a crazy time to be running for office nationally because we are running against these extreme, you know, you can't have a normal conversation about, you know, the, the shape and size of government or government's role when you're talking about a party that wants to tear down democracy. But but as you're thinking about kind of the positive message we have to put forward, not just running against the extremism, which is super important, you know, you are the chair of the Democratic Party nationally. When So I'm going to ask you from the top. When people ask you, you know, why are you a Democrat or what do Democrats stand for? Why should I vote Democratic? What is your message to people? Yeah, well, my message is that we are the party of freedom. We're the party that believes that all people, as the founders say, all people are created equal. And we believe that to the core of who we are and that all people in this country should have the ability to live their American dream, whatever that dream may be. Regardless of their background, regardless of their race, regardless of who they pray to, regardless of who they love, how they identify themselves, that they should all have the power to live their American dream. And when they run up against a barrier or an issue or an obstacle to that, that we as a party utilizes all of the things that we have in order to eliminate that barrier. That's who we are fundamentally as a Democratic Party. We're also the party that reflects the diversity of this great nation. If you look at the Democratic Party, we look like America. I can't say that about the Republican Party, but the Democratic Party, I can. We look like America. And we understand that America's greatest strength is her diversity. But we also know that diversity comes with challenges. And that, you know, in terms of making sure that we're all on the same page, particularly when we come from different places and, and have different points of views. So I'm proud of all of the things that we've been able to accomplish in this Democratic Party, because I know that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and Democrats in the House and Senate and Democrats in all of across this country wake up each and every day thinking about how can we improve the lives of the people that we represent? And the counter to that is the Republican Party that thinks about how can we get more power? You know, we believe that our better days are ahead of us. That's who we are as Democratic Party. Our superpower is hope. Republicans, their superpower is fear. They believe that the better days are behind us. And that is the stark contrast between what you will see in this next election, but also what you see between the two parties. Hope versus fear. I love that so much. If I can ask a follow-up question, I couldn't agree with you more about the accomplishments of this administration. And obviously, as the New Deal, working with state and local elected officials all over the country, we've tried very hard to 
make sure people know on the ground the impact that some of the legislation and the efforts of the administration have had on real people around the country. We've done, you know, a number of things of lifting up what's happened with the ARPA dollars, for example. Yet I remain concerned that there seems to be a disconnect, probably because people are watching news that they, you know, reinforces their belief. They don't want to hear anything different. But, you know, there's obviously a big disconnect between what people know about the accomplishments of this administration and um, and what's actually happened. I think I saw a poll at like only 25% of people knew that the infrastructure bill had even passed, which is crazy to me. So how do we as a party make sure that people really understand the, the great things that this administration has accomplished in terms of investing in America? Debbie, that is one of my biggest frustrations. And, and it's partly because you know, you would think that earned media would talk about some of these historic legislative achievements that we've seen in this administration over the course of two and two and a half years. I mean, the largest infrastructure bill since Dwight Eisenhower. When you look at the Inflation Reduction Act, the largest investment in fighting back against climate crisis ever in the history of this world by any country, over a trillion dollars. You look at the game changer we just announced yesterday that for the first time, Medicare is going to be able to negotiate the price of prescription drugs and the huge impact that's going to have on the quality of life of people in this country. So all of these things, I mean, the millions of people who've had student loans forgiven and how transformative that's going to be. And so these have been some real game changers in terms of America. I mean, just one of these things would have been the hallmark for some president to run on for re-election. But Joe Biden has done so much over the course of a short period of time and given a very slim majorities in the House and the Senate. You know, my frustration is that our media, instead of talking about that, they're talking about things that the American people don't really give a damn about, Right. And so that means the weight falls all on us to be able to deliver that. Uh, And there's only so much that we can pay for in terms of TV ads and all. Where the real power lies, folks, and for those who are watching and listening to this podcast, it's with each and every one of you. The thing that I've learned in life is that when I think of 18-year-olds, who's the most powerful person in the life of an 18-year-old? It's another 18-year-old, right? When we think about our own lives, who can persuade us to do things or to teach us to take a second look at things? Are the people that we love and cherish in our lives, our family members, our friends, our co-workers, you know, the people we go to worship with, those people have a lot of power. Well, one of the things that we need is for those in our party who understand how much we have gotten done, even in the face of Republican obstruction. We need those folks to go out and be the spokespeople for our party. There's only so much that I'm going to say. And when people even hear me say it, they're going to be like, well, I expect you, Jamie. You're the DNC chair. I expect you to say that. But when your wife says it to you, when your husband says it to you, when your cousin, your niece, your nephew, your aunt, your uncle, when your best friend says it to you, it has a different type of value. It has a different type of power. And so we need all of us to be mouthpieces about the things that we've been able to do and the things that we have been able to achieve. And why is that even more powerful? It is because the person that is closest to you understands the one particular, there's so many things that we can point to that Joe Biden has been able to do. I don't know, Debbie, what's the most important thing to you. I don't know if it's the climate change. I don't know if it's, you know, the executive actions in terms of policing. I don't know if it's student loans. But I I can guarantee you 
somebody who's close to you knows what's important to you, right? And can pick and choose those things that are valuable to get you to kind of take a second look and think about it differently. And that's why I often tell people they, you know, I hear all the time, it's like, where's the national messaging? Where's the national messaging? Folks have to understand, we are a diverse party. We're a diverse country. For us to just drop you some national messaging from Washington, D.C. doesn't mean that that messaging is going to resonate with you if that is not on the top of your priority list. Talk about how Democrats have delivered. And you got so much to say in terms of delivering where, how we have delivered in the environment, how we delivered in education, how we delivered in criminal justice reform, how we delivered on student loans, how we delivered in healthcare, And then you on a local level, pick and choose what works for the people that you represent and the people that you know. And then you fill that umbrella with those things instead of waiting from on high for Jamie Harrison and DNC or the DCCC or the DSEC to tell you what's the most important thing to you. You know that already. We only need folks on the local level to pick the multitude of things that we've been able to accomplish across the board to then fill out the puzzle for your local communities. Politics is personal, right? It is all local too. (laughs) And it's local. Can you give us a sense of your journey? What got you to this position? I assume most people don't grow up being like, when I grow up, I want to be chair of the DNC. So like, what's the path that brought you here? And, you know, how do you keep hope and believing in politics when so many people are looking at it and saying, I know it's important, but I'm going to keep 10 feet away or 20 feet away from that mess? Yeah. What keeps you going every day? So it's important to know, you know, the journey that folks have taken. I was born in South Carolina, born to a teen mom. My mom was 16 years old when she had me and she had to drop out of school to take care of me. But I was raised primarily by my grandparents. My grandmother had an eighth grade education. She was a domestic worker, worked in the textile plants here in South South Carolina. My grandfather was a construction worker with a fourth grade education. So, you know, in terms of them, they didn't have a whole lot of money, didn't have a whole lot of education. And so most people would think, well, you know, they're just working folks, but they were rich in terms of values that they taught me. They taught me the value of hard work and the value of never giving up. Well, you know, nobody in my family had ever been involved in politics. And so the first moment that I can remember being intrigued by politics was actually in 1988 when Jesse Jackson gave a speech at the convention, the Democratic convention. Now, in my house, when my grandfather was watching TV, you watch whatever he watched. We only had one TV and you watch whatever you watch. So we were watching the convention and I sat there and watched with him. And Reverend Jackson's speech just spoke to me in a way. I was 12 years old and he talked about young people and how young people could change this country, how young people had the power to do and be what they wanted to be. And that really resonated with me, particularly seeing a black guy from South Carolina with a very similar background on this grand stage. You know, fast forward, my first campaign that I worked on was the Clinton-Gore campaign in, in 92. I was uh, 16 years old in high school, and I volunteered with the Young Democrats in Orangeburg, did voter registration. And I was, again, intrigued by these two sons of the South, particularly Bill Clinton's story. You know, before, there's a whole generation that was, spawned on Barack Obama, but my political teeth were cut with, you know, the Clinton-Gore uh, campaign. And so, you know, I was amazed at his education background, 
And then Jim Clyburn got elected to Congress that same year in 92, first African-American to be elected to Congress from South Carolina since Reconstruction. So that had an impact on me. And I met Congressman Clyburn a little thereafter. I had just got elected president of the National Honor Society in my high school. And we had to find somebody to come and install the new officers and to give a speech. And so I told my advisor I wanted to invite Jim Clyburn to install me as president. (laughs) I didn't know any better. So I reached out to his office and he actually showed up. (laughs) And he said, I've been a bad penny ever since. He couldn't get rid of me. But I told him, I said, Congressman, I want to work in your office. I want to do this. I want to do that. He said, well, I want you to go to college first. And I, and I, ended, up, I ended up going to college at Yale University. And then I ended up interning in his office in my junior year and really got the bug. He brought me back when I was in law school. I became the youngest and the first Black executive director of the House Democratic Caucus. I became the whip, the floor director in the whip's office. So when we took back the majority in 2006, then went on, worked in the private sector for a while, became the chair of the South Carolina Democratic Party, then ran for DNC chair, lost the first time to Tom Perez. and But Tom asked me to be an associate chair of the DNC, then ran for the United States Senate against Lindsey Graham, didn't win that. But shortly after my race, the president asked me to be the chair of the DNC. And so that's my journey. That's my story. And the thing that keeps me going is hope. You know, here in South Carolina, we have a motto, while I breathe, I hope. And I think it's a beautiful one. But as a young Black man growing up the way that I did, all I had at times was hope. Hope that things would be better. Hope that, you know, the tough times in the night would go away with the bright opportunities in the morning. And that hope is that faith in hope, the faith that things would get better, has really paid dividends for me over the years. And, and I see how important that is for so many communities. And when they lose sense of hope, that's when the tough times really come. And I believe that we are, the Democratic Party is the party of hope. And that's why I'm proud to be the chair of this party, because I know that we fight each and every day to make the lives of the American people better. Do we always hit it? Do we always get it right? No, we don't get it right every single time. But it's not because of the lack of effort. It's not because we aren't trying. And that's the really important thing, is to make sure that we're trying to lift up all of the boats in this nation and not just a select few. So I'm proud of this party. I'm I'm proud of the journey that I've been on. And I'm proud of the little piece that I've been able to do to make it easier for other little round-headed boys and girls growing up in poor and impoverished communities to live their dreams. That's just an amazing story. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And I just love the hope, you know, the emphasis on hope. I think that's exactly right for our party. As we wrap up, maybe I'd ask you, as as you know, New Deal works with state and local elected officials around the country. We have a lot of other listeners who are maybe aspiring elected officials. I know you were, as you mentioned in your journey, the South Carolina party chair. You know, what's your message to people out there in terms of my message is going to be listen to what you just said and just say that. Keep talking about hope. But what would your message be to people who are out there as we head into 24 and, and beyond? And to your earlier point when we started this conversation, at this really critical moment for our country, where, yeah. where this is a really important choice. What's your message to everyone out there? Well, Debbie and Ryan, a few years ago, I actually wrote a book, co-wrote a book with a Republican friend of mine who also worked on the Hill the same time that I worked on it. And it's called Climbing the Hill, How to Build a Career in Politics and Make a Difference. 
Because ultimately, this is not about power for power's sake or for you to have some ritzy title or whatever. For me, and I think for a lot of us who get involved in this, it's about the public service, about really making a difference in the lives of folks. And because I did not have somebody, a mentor or a bigger brother, a big sister, or a family member that was involved in politics, I had to figure out how to navigate it myself. And there were some things that we I made mistakes on and things that, in retrospect, I wish I would have done differently. My co-author, Amos Sneed, who worked for Roy Blunt, we sort of shared those stories. And what we did was we pulled them all in a book. Again, it's called Climbing the Hill. And it's really a guide for young people who are interested in getting involved in politics, particularly thinking about you know going to Capitol Hill or maybe working in state legislatures. In the end of the day, what we can't lose focus on is, and you see this problem in politics, that many politicians get up to these positions and they believe that the power is within them, that they are the power. But the way that I like to say it is that we're not the sun. The sun is the American people. It's the constituents. What we are is the moon. And we only reflect the power of the sun, right? And I think it's understanding that perspective really keeps you on the straight and narrow in terms of what you can do and how you can achieve this thing, because the power isn't yours. You know, the people are giving you their power. They're giving you their sunlight to reflect back to everyone else. And so I encourage young people who are getting involved in politics for the first time, stay focused, stay focused on how you improve the lives of your constituents. Make sure you keep those connections that you never get too big for your britches, as my grandma often says, that you stay connected with the real people on the ground, that you keep your finger on the pulse of what people are talking about, what people are feeling, the hurt that they have, the challenges that they face. It's not about you coming in to offer solutions, but you going in to hear, because oftentimes the people on the ground not only know the problem, but they also know the solutions to the problem. The only thing is they don't have the power, the mechanisms or or the know-how in order to bring those solutions into fruition. And that is where we all come in as public service. That's where we all come in as we bridge the gap. We bring those things to bear so that we can address the things that are going on in the lives of people. But I enjoy doing this immensely. At times, people say, you know, being a party chair is a thankless job. And they're right. It is because you get all the arrows. People want to blame you for everything. People think you have the ultimate power to change everything. As DNC chair, people think I have this complete, like this magic wand. I can just wish away everything and change everything. And you don't. Uh, You only can, can control your slice of the pie. And that's what we try to do. But what we also try to do is to coordinate with the other slices so to make that one big pie. And so uh, I enjoy the work that we do. It is frustrating at times, but when it works, it is magical. And uh, I try to strive each and every day to make it work. Thank you. That's amazing. We have to create a subtitle of this podcast of An Honorable Profession by Being a Moon. <laughs> I like it. I think that's a perfect metaphor. And I want to thank you for joining us. We've been at this five years and 200 episodes, and we're going to try to double that's that awesome. by uh, highlighting all the moons out there that are out there making a difference in their communities. And we appreciate you joining us and the support that you do work, do it, provide every day as chair to all the state and local Dems who are trying to build the base of the party. 
Well, thank you both for what you're doing. Thank you for building people up and getting more moons out there because we need them. (laughs) So much. Appreciate your time. Thank Thank you. you. Take care. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.